Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This week's Grand Rounds comes from a Prova Education Live program named From Guideline to Practice, and the lecture is titled Implementing the Update Guidelines in Managing Asthma in Primary Care. Speaking is Dr. Michael Wexler, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Associate Director of the Asthma Research Center at Brigham and Women's Hospital. I'm Mike Wexler. It's a pleasure to uh, speak with you this morning about how to best implement the uh, new guidelines in asthma into your primary care practices. So uh, my goals are to define asthma and its epidemiology, to describe the goals of asthma therapy, review the barriers to asthma control, uh, review current asthma guidelines and treatment options, and when to refer patients, which I think is probably the most important thing that you guys need to take home from this. It's what are the options that you should be using and when should you refer. As you know, asthma is a clinical syndrome and there's no gold standard for diagnosis. It's a chronic inflammatory disorder uh, characterized by airflow limitation, airway inflammation, and increased airway hyperresponsiveness, or twitchiness of the airways in response to a variety of different stimuli. An asthmatic airway is narrow, it's very, it's filled, it can be filled with mucus, inflammatory cells, very thick and smooth muscle layer. And that's what really contributes to the symptoms of asthma. It's really this narrowing of the airways. You can imagine it's much harder to get air through this smaller airway than through this larger, more patent airway. And it's really, you know, patients feel these symptoms, but below the symptoms, there's a whole iceberg of underlying airway inflammation, bronchial hyperresponsiveness, and airflow obstruction. And the way to think about these, uh, the pathophysiological reasons why this is happening, is really the dual component of inflammation and bronchoconstriction. If you strip away some of the mucous gland layers, there's this thick and smooth muscle layer that wraps around the airway and causes tightening. And that's the bronchoconstriction part of it. That's what causes the air trapping and the sensation that it's hard to get air in and out of the airways. Very thick and smooth muscle air, a ton of inflammatory cells. Within the airway, there's mucus and debris. So you can imagine it's very hard to breathe through that. Now, we have a lot of asthma therapies available. These are all the asthma therapies that are currently available for the management of asthma. You have round ones, you've got long ones, you've got short ones, uh, you've got nasal ones, you've got pills. There's a lot of different options. There are now injectable therapies. And the, the problem is, is that you know, we've had 100 years of asthma therapy, and we've gone from using uh, epinephrine to oral steroids to theophylline uh, to chromalin, and then we started to add, and just in the last 20 to 25 years, inhaled corticosteroids, long-acting beta agonists, leukotriene modifiers, and now anti-IG is the newest of these therapies. But the goals of asthma management have changed as well. Just over the last 50 years, we've gone to relieving bronchospasm with epinephrine to try to prevent bronchospasm with theophylline and beta agonists, to preventing allergy-induced bronchospasm with chromalin, to then moving to more towards inflammation. The 1990s were a big anti inflammatory area where we start to use inhaled corticosteroids and leukotriene modifiers more. And this decade, the last decade, we've really moved on to preventing and reversing airway remodeling using disease modifiers, uh, inhaled corticosteroids, leukotriene receptor antagonists, anti-IG. I suspect the next decade will be one where we do more targeted therapy, targeted biomarkers, targeted at genomics. 
So when we have all these different options, we have to put into perspective what the patients want. Well, patients want to stay out of the hospital, out of the emergency room. They want to not have urgent care visits with you or go to the hospital. They don't want to be limited by physical activities at all. They want no minimal or tolerable symptoms. And they want a treatment plan that's convenient, effective, affordable, and personalized. They want a therapy that uh, will, will make them asymptomatic, essentially, and have asthma not interfere with their life. So we have now all of the therapies that I mentioned already. I added on anticholinergics, including ipitropium and teotropium at the bottom. Those are also bona fide options. But despite the fact that we have all these therapies, there's still a lot of morbidity and mortality from asthma. In fact, of the 20 million Americans with, uh, with asthma, there's still 4,000 deaths a year due to asthma. And despite the fact that we have all these therapies, we haven't really impacted on that number. There's still a large number of deaths. There's still half a million hospitalizations for asthma and a couple of million emergency room visits for asthma every year. And we spend 16 billion dollars a year taking care of people with asthma. And that also results in several million lost work days and lost school days due to asthma. So we need to try and do better. We need to try and have an impact on our patients with therapies. So three years ago, the National Asthma Education Prevention Program came out with this expert panel report. They said, well, you know, we, we need to try and gain control of asthma. We need to try and prevent asthma symptoms, prevent exacerbations from asthma, uh, make sure that there's no limitations on activity, try to maintain normal lung function, have minimal use of rescue inhaler, and minimal adverse effects from medications. That's what the patients want. That's what we want. That's what physicians want. We basically want to make sure that asthma doesn't interfere with people's lives. So how have people done in terms of uh, achieving these goals? Well, in terms of no missed work or school, 49% of children and 25% of adults said they missed work or school due to asthma. 30% of patients with asthma report at least one nocturnal awakening a month due to asthma. 48% say that asthma interferes with recreation, and 36% say it interferes with normal physical exertion. 32% of children and 19% of adults required emergency room visits over the last year. We want normal lung function, but only about a third of patients actually had lung function testing in the prior year. And despite being on the highest doses of inhaled steroids or recommended therapy of lying to beat agonists, still 30% of patients remain uncontrolled. That's data from the GOAL study, which is a study that Eric Bateman published six years ago, in which they looked at people uh, with asthma who had escalating doses of inhaled steroids plus long-acting beta agonists. And what they found was that 30% of patients on fluticasone plus salmeterol failed to achieve full control of their asthma, 30% of patients who were on inhaled steroids alone. So despite being on combination therapy uh, with long-acting agonist and an inhaled corticosteroid, Ticazone plus salmeterol, 29% still remained uncontrolled regardless of their uh, therapy. That's a lot. So why are these treatment goals not being achieved? Why is there this variability in, in asthma response? Well, some of it is due to the variance in what constitutes asthma control. Physicians and patients have very different definitions of control. The other issue is that asthma severity is very variable. From time to time, you could be very stable one day, very poorly controlled the next day, and, and stable again the following day. Um, the other issue is that there's no simple marker of control. And the last couple of important points are that there, the symptoms of asthma persist despite the use of recommended therapy. So no matter what we do, for some patients, they're still going to have bad asthma because we don't have the right therapies for them yet, and we're working on that. The other last important issue is, is adherence. And if you don't take your medications as you're supposed to, then of course they're not going to work. 
So let's go through each of those points one by one. First is the differences in perception and control between physicians and patients. This was a study by Louis-Philippe Boulet from uh, Quebec. Uh, who asked patients whether or not, and physicians, whether or not their, their symptoms were controlled. And 66% of patients thought their asthma was controlled, but when they asked the physicians about those patients, the physicians only said that only 43% of their patients were controlled. So clearly there's a discrepancy between perception of control. And it can go both ways. There can also be physicians who over-perceive or under-perceive asthma control. The other issue I mentioned was adherence. Nearly 70% of patients failed to refill their inhaled corticosteroid prescription. This was a study uh, done 10 years ago by Jeff Drazen, my mentor and current editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. Jeff uh, did a study looking back at uh, prescription refill rates and found that with leukotriene receptor antagonists, a pill, the refill rate was about 60%. In, with long beta agonists, about 40%. With inhaled steroids, it's only about 30%. So patients aren't refilling their medications. They're not taking them as they're prescribed. They're, of course, they're not going to be well controlled. Now, there are issues with controller therapy, and there's a lot of them. Some of it has to do with effectiveness. Does it work in real world versus efficacy, which is how does it do in a clinical trial? And effectiveness really depends on both efficacy, can it work in a, clinical, in a controlled trial, and compliance and if patients aren't taking their medicine, then effectiveness will be diminished. Now, what are the issues that affect compliance? These are important, and there's a lot of different issues. One is, is that a medication is either a pill or an inhaler, and not everyone uses an inhaler properly. And so that, that comes up often. I ask all my patients to show me how they use their inhaler. And they, you know, they'll come in, they'll bring their inhaler, and they'll shake it up. And I'll say, why are you shaking it up? It's a discus. They'll say, oh, I thought I was supposed to shake it up. I'll say, no, you don't, you don't need to shake it up. Then they'll take the inhaler in. They'll, they'll, they'll show me how they click. They double click. They put it in their mouth. They blow out. And then they suck in. And I, when they blow out, all the powder goes throughout the room. I start to feel better. I bronchodilate. But none of it went into their lungs. And so uh, inhaler technique is very important. You need to teach your patients how to use it. Spend the extra few minutes going over it. Uh, there are great videos on the web about how to take these things. Uh, and so it's easy to do. Cost is a big issue. These medications are not, not inexpensive. You know, if you don't have insurance, it costs at least $100 to get any inhaler for asthma. The dosing frequency. A lot of therapies are still twice a day. They're now coming out with once daily inhaled steroids are available. Once daily long activated agonists are being uh, looked at and approved. Once daily combination therapies are being looked at and will be uh, studied over the next few years. Um, and then onset of action is another issue. Sometimes patients say, well, I won't take my inhaled steroid because, uh, you know, uh, I took it for a few days and it didn't have a benefit. It's like, well, you need to wait more than a few days. It's something that doesn't benefit you right away. It's more of a longer time to try and uh, address those issues. Plus, side effects are another issue. So what accounts for differences in response to therapy? Well, I said not everyone responds the same. Uh, and there are some responders and some non-responders. Some of it is due to environment, such as exposure to allergens. So if you're allergic to cats and you have a cat at home, you're not going to respond to whatever I give you, likely. And that's not uncommon. I, I see a lot of patients with, with, uh, with asthma who ha are allergic to cats, and they have a cat, and they're like, I just can't get rid of the cat. You know, and then they might come to me like a couple years later, and I'll say, wow, your asthma is a lot better. And they'll say, yeah, my cat died. And I'd say, duh, no kidding. So uh, that's important to recognize. Uh, adherence to therapy, you know, if they're not taking their medica medications properly, uh, then of course they're not going to respond. If they're not using their inhaler technique uh, the, the right way, of course not. Diet and tobacco use can play a role. Age and size of the patient, uh, underlying state of health, concurrent illness, and drug-drug interactions. 
there are a lot of patients taking beta blockers and beta, beta for, say, hypertension and beta agonists for asthma. They might compete for one, with one another and may not be quite so effective. And then lastly, genetics. Genetics, I think, plays a significant role in response to therapy. And there's a whole realm of pharmacogenetics. It's something that we've been looking at, we've studied extensively, and we've identified certain genes that predict responsiveness to one therapy or another, particularly with beta agonists. We've identified mutations in the beta receptor that may predict responsiveness to beta agonists, particularly among uh, African Americans or blacks, something we're studying. So this has led all into the guidelines. And the guidelines really have three key buzzwords that you need to be aware of. One is severity, is someone mild, moderate, or severe? Another is control, is the patient well-controlled or not well-controlled? And the other is responsiveness, how well does an individual respond to whatever therapy you give them? You can apply this, frankly, to any disease state, to diabetes, to cholesterol, to heart disease. But in asthma, we've simplified it, severity, control, and responsiveness. And um, you also want to look at their current impairment, how, how are they doing right now, and what's their risk of future exacerbations. So severity is the intrinsic intensity of the disease process. It's when you see the patient for the first time, they're not on any therapy, how severe is their disease? We'll talk about how you gauge that. And um, it's most easily done when someone's not on long-term therapy, but you can do it when someone's on therapy as well. Control is the degree to which symptoms, impairment, and risk of exacerbations are minimized and the goals of therapy are met. So again, is your patient well-controlled or are they not well-controlled? Uh, we'll go over how to do that as well. And then responsiveness is how well people respond to a given therapy. So we'll start this off by doing a poll, and I'll ask you the question. Tommy B. is a 32-year-old athlete with a history of asthma. He uses an albuterol rescue inhaler twice a week. And twice a month, he wakes up with some asthma symptoms. He's had unscheduled asthma visits for mild flares three times in the last year. How would you characterize Tom's asthma severity? What pushes Tom from being mild persistent to moderate persistent is a slight nuance, and that's the fact that he's had three exacerbations over the last year. And the reason I, I brought this question up was to highlight the fact that you should ask your patients how frequently have they had flares of their asthma over the prior year. And we'll talk about what constitutes mild, persistent, mild, moderate, persistent. But the key thing is, is asking your patients, how many flares have you had? And then assess accordingly. So this is how we currently assess control in, in adults, people 12 years of age and older. We characterize people based on whether or not they've got intermittent disease or persistent disease. And if you have persistent disease, then you're either mild, moderate, or severe. And we ask basically five questions, six questions is what you need to do to assess whether or not someone's uh, mild, moderate, or severe. You want to look at symptoms, nighttime awakenings, rescue beta agonist use, interference with daily activities, do lung function testing, and then ask about number of exacerbations. There's a rule of twos which people use, which say if you basically have more than two days a week of symptoms, more than two nights a month of nighttime awakenings, more than two days a week of interference of rescue beta agonist use, if you have any limitation in daily activities, or if your lung function is less than 80% predicted, or if you have got uh, more than two exacerbations a year, then you are considered to have persistent disease. So use that rule of twos. Think about, you know, should you be, your patient be taking their medication, their rescue inhaler, more than twice a week or, or more, uh, or more than that? Should they be having any limitation to exercise? And you should also be checking lung function. I'm curious if 
most of you check lung function in your asthma patients or send them out for lung function testing. So its current recommendations is for you to, at least in asthma patients, check their lung function, make sure there's no decline in lung function on an annual basis. Um, this is the characterization of control. This is control. The last one was severity. And you basically use the same criteria. So it's very easy for clinicians. You basically want to ask the same questions. Symptoms, nighttime awakenings, rescue beta agonist use, interference with daily activity, FEV1, exacerbations. And the thing that's been added in is these validated questionnaires. Uh, we'll go over them in a second. But basically, you want to ask the same questions. And it's, again, the same rule of twos. If you have more than two, symptom, two days of symptoms a week, if you have nighttime awakenings more than a couple of times a month, if you use your rescue inhaler more than a couple of times a week, if you have any interference with daily activities, if you have a couple of exacerbations a year, you're not well controlled. And you just need to meet any one of these criteria to be not well controlled. Uh, and then, you know, having lung functions less than 80% predicted or having uh, one of these questionnaires. So let's go take a look, look at these questionnaires. This is the asthma control test. Look, let's look at some of the questions here. You add up the score at the end. How often did your asthma keep you from getting as much done at work, school, or at home? How often have you had shortness of breath? How often did you have asthma symptoms? Did asthma symptoms wake you up at night? How often have you had to use your rescue inhaler? How would you rate your asthma control during the past four weeks? Very similar to the, all the other questions we asked. So you can apply this to your patients. And the way we do it is, while patients are in the waiting room, if they've got asthma, this is their diagnosis. They get one of these. They fill it out in the waiting room. They come in. We already have one piece of data. Plus, they get spirometry. We do lung function testing. The other questionnaire is the attack questionnaire. There's an adult form. There's a pediatric form. You can mail this to your patients. It's validated for mailing. It can be done over the phone. It can be done in the office. It can be done by the physician. It doesn't matter. Use this one. Use the other one. It's very helpful. Uh, you can download these off the internet, either the attack questionnaire or the asthma control test. Very easy to do, very worthwhile to utilize in your practice. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break. <laughs>